Marcella Hansch, CEO of the Everway Foundation, and I'm the host of this podcast. In our last episode, we were honored to be joined by Professor Dr. Martin Fisbeck, Oceanographer of the Geoma Helmholtz Centrum, Dr. Matteo Kries, Director of the Vitra Design Museum, Louise Holloway, Co-Founder and Director of the Energy Endeavor Foundation, as well as Professor Dr. Doman of the University in Bonn. We discussed the ocean's potential to solve the climate crisis, opportunities to tackle the global plastic pollution, along with the question of how we can sustainably shape tomorrow's built environment. In case you have missed these editions, we invite you to take a sneak peek in the last releases. Coming to today's podcast, we want to explore the question of how we can create a resilient nature for future generations. Do you know that more than half of our world's population lives in urban areas? And this trend, of course, is rising. At the same time, we all see and feel various effects of the climate crisis in our daily lives. We know that the sea levels rising and our biodiversity faces huge losses. But how we can counteract this high demand for space and resources of our fast-growing and dynamic society while protecting the natural environments and landscape for our generations to come. Finding answers to these questions is the profession of my guest today, Ms. Alexandra Steed. Alexandra is Chartered Landscape Architect. Canadian-born, she moved to London 20 years ago. There she founded her own design practice named Alexandra Steed Urban. It is consisting of landscape architects, architects and urbanists 10 years ago, now focusing on a public area and landscape at all project scales. Welcome, Ms. Alexandra Steed. Oh, thanks very much, Marcella. I'm so happy to be here to speak to you today. Thank you very much um, for taking your time. And um, yeah, would you like to share a few more things about you, yourself and your work? Well, sure. I, I guess I'd just like to start by saying I am a passionate landscape architect and urban designer, and I think you'll hear about that uh, through our conversation today. And I also wanted to say I'm a passionate landscape architect because I believe in the power of landscape to create a better world. You know, so landscape is the location where humans and the rest of the living world meet. And so therefore it expresses everything that we as humans believe about ourselves but also about what we believe about our relationship to nature. And so this is all manifest in the built environment. So the landscape is where history is made visible. It's where the present is held and where it's where the future becomes possible. And I think that's what's so exciting for us as designers of this world. So when we collaborate with nature and its magnificent intelligence in the landscape, we will create a better world. So, you know, there's just so much exciting potential there. Yeah, and this is so, so important. Before we founded the social business Everwave a couple of years ago, I worked for several years as an architect. And of course, sustainability played an important role um, even then, but not as it is today. And I was working on a lot of 
public project as well. And yeah, finally, when it comes to the costs, the costs are much more important than sustainability. So um, I'm really interested in what the driving forces behind your decisions are to start your own business. So what does your company exactly do? Probably you can tell a bit more about that. Sure, sure. Well, we uh, we work on urban design projects, master planning, and then strategic landscape scale projects as well. And, you know, originally back in 2013, I started my company. It's called Alexandra Steed Urban because we were really focusing at that time on creating better urban environments to bring joy to people's everyday experience of the city. You know, because so often we are isolated in these dense urban environments from nature. And so one of our um, one of our real reasons for being was to reconnect people with nature in urban environments. But now we're finding that actually the scale of our work is really increasing. So we've gone from working in city environments, sometimes sort of plazas, rooftops, um, residential schemes, you know, projects like that. But we've really moved on to much larger schemes. So master plans and even regional strategies that cover, you know, thousands of, of hectares of landscape. So, you know, at every scale, it's just so important that we're always thinking about how we can most beneficially and successfully collaborate with nature to enrich uh, the lives of not only humans, but also of all life forms, of all beings on this planet. Yeah, I really like that you are focused on the big picture um, of a project, not just like the small part, but that you really see the big picture. And I really like it that you're focusing on projects uh, who are tackle the climate crisis. So to give an example, um, on the World Architecture Festival, which took place in December in Lisbon, um, and by the way, Grower was uh, one of the founding partners, um, you and your team won the World Architecture Festival Award on the Sea Park. The Sea Park is the South Essex Estuary Park. It's a project which always see the big picture as well. So could you explain a bit more what this project is about? Right. Well, this is a very exciting project and it's an ongoing one. So we started it back in uh, 2019 and um, it's a project for ASELA, which is the Association of South Essex Local Authorities. So South Essex is located just to the east of London. So it's right on London's doorstep. It's part of the Thames Estuary. And so it reaches all the way from the North Sea and then in through the Thames Estuary to London. So it's a really important location uh, in the region. And there are seven of the authorities so six local authorities plus Essex County Council came together and have formed this united group called ASELA. And they recognized that the region is under extreme stresses, partly because of climate change, partly because of ecological decline, but also because there's intense growth pressures that exist just outside of London, of course. So they're trying to come up with some way of balancing all of these things and making South Essex a better place um, by doing so. So one of their key programs then is to look at the green and blue infrastructure. So that's the project that we were commissioned to look at. And that was happening alongside programs for housing, 
housing, for transportation, for digital services. So it's considered one of these five main programs that they're working on. And in terms of challenges, you know, I mentioned there's climate change and ecological decline. And specifically in the estuary, you know, we're looking at all sorts of consequences due to sea level rising. There's also concerns with North Sea storm surges that kind of get lodged into the estuary at that point. There's pluvial flooding, there's drought, there's issues of what's called coastal squeeze, where significant habitat areas through the marshlands are getting squeezed due to sea level rising, but then where there's nowhere for those landscapes to migrate to because of pressures from development on the inland side. So there's those sorts of issues. There's issues of lack of connectivity, fragmentation, and as I said earlier, Um, intense development pressure at the same time as a lot of kind of existing community concerns around, you know, deprivation and social inequity. So anyway, there's there's loads of things to, to discuss and to explore in that region. Yeah. Absolutely. I read on the on the website that it's also like a, a very important area for the economic type and um, that it's also helping the UK to recover like the post-COVID uh, times. So like uh, a really, really important thing. And the current status of this region, you already mentioned some points, but what does it currently look like and, and what are those core objects of this project? Right. Well, well, currently the region has been stressed for, I would say, centuries where hectares, thousands of hectares of marshland have been converted into agricultural areas. They've been lost to industry. They've been become sort of London's waste area. So waste from London is still exported to Essex. And there's loads of landfills that are located all along the estuary. So a huge amount of landfill. There's very important port activities that occur in that area as well. So it's, it's an area that's a real combination of many things that I think many sort of edgeland type or, or sort of peri-urban environments deal with, where it's, it's really serving London in so many ways, but yet has its own character and attributes. So it's a combination of industry, agriculture, residential areas, tourism. You know, people go there to escape the city as well and to see the beautiful countryside. So it's a real amalgamation of so many things and everything sort of comes together in this one area that's right on, on London's doorstep. So part of our rationale for doing this green and blue infrastructure study was because they know that Essex sort of needs a new identity and it needs to somehow move and progress into the future in a way that's sustainable and that starts to address all these years of pollution, of industry, of intense pressure that it's been under. So to start looking at how we can restore nature, how we can improve connectivity through pedestrian and cycling routes, how we can improve people's access to local nature sites and to other green um, and public spaces. So it's a, a really multi-level sort of project. And the way we look at green and blue infrastructure can just do so many things. It can achieve so many benefits that it's, it's incredible, actually. It will, it will bring tremendous value to the region, along with a whole new sort of identity and image. 
Yeah, definitely. And it's so important that sustainability is not something which uh, the people and the economics see like something additional, but that is it the main factor and that it's also like a, a positive effect on the economic system for the future. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, towards the end of our study, we had what's called a, a, a natural capital account done of the region just for South Essex. And so they look at factors to do with tourism, recreation, the natural resource value, uh, value to do with um, carbon offsetting, um, carbon sequestration, biodiversity benefits, you know, all sorts of things. Health and well-being is a big factor. And so there's now um, an economic way of measuring those gains financially. And what was found through this study is that in South Essex alone, there's about 7.2 billion pounds worth uh, per annum of value existing there just through the landscape. You know, and these are things that haven't been recognized until just very recently. So only very recently are these natural capital accounts um, being generated so that, so that people can start to see, oh, yes, it's not just, you know, I think in the past, so many people thought, oh, those are just kind of soft things. They're nice to haves, but they're not essential. It's not fundamental that we have good landscape, you know. I think a lot of people had that opinion that it was it was always more sort of technological infrastructure that was more important and more valuable. But now we're starting to recognize the incredible value, even economically, of these really important living infrastructures. That's so true and so important to see the value of a healthy planet, a healthy society and a healthy landscape. So I really appreciate that. And in your project, you talk about the key moves. Could you explain a little bit more? What does it mean with some examples? Sure. Um, right. Well, we had a very clear methodology for this project because when you're working on a project of this scale, which is 70,000 hectares, you have to be very clear about what your strategy is or you can easily get lost and uh, become very confused. <laughs> so um, we were very, very clear about the methodology we're following. And so we, we went through a clear approach that involved a baseline analysis that assessed things in layers. So, you know, it's called this overlay technique where you look at the hydrology, you look at the ecology, you look at geology, all the cultural and heritage locations, you look at development, you know, and you layer this all together to show you where the opportunities are and where sort of your greatest challenges and um, where the greatest strengths are and how you might work with those by looking that, at them in relationship to each other. So then we, you know, we did this very comprehensive analysis. Then we looked at, okay, well, coming out of the, that analysis, what are the key themes in this area that we need to address? So things like climate change and flooding, resilience, um, nature recovery, housing, growth and development, you know, all of these key themes that we were looking at. And then those were translated into a series of objectives. And then from those objectives, we moved into key moves then that, that our strategy would contain. And so we came up with six key moves. The first was being to build a resilient framework. And that was 
establishing a regional parkland. So what we did there was establish sort of 24,000 hectares of a landscape framework, which would act to provide kind of a foundation and a structure for the whole region of which then development can sit within. But it was protecting 30% of the area. So that's um, substantial. And that's looking at existing landscape spaces and then how we might actually connect them to provide a complete framework. The second was building landscape connectivity. So creating a whole series of blueways and greenways throughout the whole region that would connect not only people, but wildlife, because there's a lot of islands of isolated nature sites, but they're not well connected. And we now know how important it is that we are connecting and providing places for wildlife to migrate and to move. So that connectivity is really key, not only for us, you know, in our day-to-day lives, but for wildlife. Um, We were also looking at integrating water management systems. So looking at how we can restore waterways, how we can improve the coastal environment. Um, You know, this is really integral to flood storage, to um, health and well-being, to the quality and replenishment of our groundwater. Um, You know, so there's there's so much value in that too. We were looking at, fourthly, um, harmonizing agricultural use in the area, which is 70% of the land area is used for agriculture. So looking at how, how that is managed, the kind of techniques and practices that are used in these agricultural areas, you know, because so many farming methods can be regenerative and wonderful in terms of nature recovery, but there's also so many methods and practices that can be really damaging to ecosystems and nature. So we were looking at how to work with the farmers in the area to improve that kind of ecosystem rehabilitation in the area. We also wanted to, fifthly, look at the unique landscape features of the area and make sure that everything we did was in keeping with its unique context. So that's always so important that you're working within an existing environment and then how you can capitalize on what's already there. So, you know, not not bringing in massive changes and trying to make it something it isn't, but just revealing what's already there and the wonderful qualities that exist And then finally, looking at how we can plan for growth and development in a much more sustainable way. So how we could work with what existed and then plan for future developments that were situated within the landscape and supported by the landscape rather than being imposed onto it. And I think that's fundamental to everything we're doing in terms of development and growth globally is how can we situate ourselves within a landscape context rather than ignoring the landscape and just kind of imposing ourselves upon it. So so those were our six key moves. Yeah, perfect. And I really like the passion you're talking about the project. Um, you really can feel how deeply you are into it. <laughs> so <laughs> I really like that. Um, But coming back from the from the passion uh, into more uh, more figures, more concrete numbers, I read about some some cycleways, some walking trails, um, and something like that. Could you give some proper concrete figures about that? Yeah, sure. So so like I said, the area is seventy thousand hectares, and so in our 
In our green and blue infrastructure strategy, we set aside 24,000 hectares for this parkland that I mentioned that, that will connect the whole area and provide sort of nature recovery throughout. 12,500 hectares of restored marshland exists within that. So in Essex, there used to be 30,000 hectares of marshland. There's now 2,500. So we are looking to restore about 12,000 hectares of that through this project. Also incorporating 200 kilometers of continuous waterfront paths. So the England Coast Path has already designated a lot of this coastal path network. And so we are sort of coordinating with those initiatives and building on that and, and helping to move that forward. And then also uh, incorporating 550 kilometers of greenways throughout the region. So, you know, making sure there's an east-west and north-south connections throughout the whole region. We were also promoting having green spaces within 350 meters of all new residential developments. And then when any sort of redevelopment was occurring in the area to also incorporate that standard as a best practice so that everybody has access to green spaces. Great. That seems to be like a lifetime project. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> <For> like, <laughs> so um, how much time does it, uh, does it need to fulfill this project? Well, I would imagine about 20 years for a project of this scale. And actually, one really interesting case study that would give us an indication of, of how long this might take is the Emscher Landscape Park, which is in Germany. I actually haven't been there, but, you know, I've, I've been able to look at the literature around it and um, have learned a lot through the process that went through there. And that was a 20-year project. Similar scale, um, the idea of converting and transforming a very sort of contaminated and post-industrial landscape into something that is really revitalized and attracts residences or residents and businesses and tourists to the area through sort of nature recovery and rehabilitation. So it would be somewhere along those lines, similar to that, that project. Well, that's, that's some time. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you, yeah. You mentioned the German, um, empty project. And as we all know, this problem, um, many countries to have this problem and um, to have to, to solve it, like Denmark, the Netherlands, Sweden. Um, is there any professional exchange with other landscape architects or biologists from other countries in order to discuss what are the best solutions, uh, what are the possible solutions? Um, is there anything about that? Yeah, well, for this particular project, we didn't actually have um, specific conversations around that. But through the course of my career, I've had many wonderful conversations about that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, I learned a huge amount through working when I was at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. I had the opportunity to work with one of my professors who was chairing something called the James Taylor Chair of landscape and livable environments. So I learned a huge amount there about incorporating nature-based solutions into development and looking at um, flood attenuation and mitigation and all those sorts of things. So I was very fortunate from 
early, early days in my career to be exposed to those kind of ideas and methods. And then I've worked with other great practices that have been involved in projects like the the Bay Area Challenge, I think it's called Resilient by Design or Resilient by Nature. And that was for San Francisco. So I currently share an office with a practice called Hassel, and they were involved in looking at strategies of how to counter sea level rise in the Bay Area. And then, of course, the work of Turnscape. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're a practice based in China, uh, architecture and urban design company, a landscape architecture and urban design company. And they've set out an approach to dealing with flooding and sea level rise and that sort of thing in China called the Sponge Cities Project. So the government has actually taken this on and is putting in um, a huge amount of funding to implement this approach into 30 projects throughout China. And many of them are now implemented. It's really exciting to see what's being done there in terms of flood mitigation and nature recovery in their urban environment. So I would, I would encourage you to look that up. It's called Sponge Cities. Wow, I will, definitely. You were talking about like real big projects um, and your project, of course, is like a really, really big one. When I think back in my time as an architect, um, we had like smaller projects like buildings, sometimes even the area. And finally, it always comes to the costs. And a lot of things were like cutted. So um, I'm wondering how is a project like yours um, is funded? Yeah, well, that is still to be determined. Um, we've actually been working on We've worked on a couple of business cases with various people that have a lot of expertise in finding funding for this type of project. So at the moment, what is emerging is that it will definitely needed to be a blended model of funding. So drawing funding from a number of various sources. One source currently is from the National Highways budget. So they have um, a mitigation scheme, it's called, for the work that's done for national highways. And so at the moment, they're funding what's called a demonstration project of this South Essex Estuary Park along uh, the coastal region. So funding is coming from there. It's drawn from the local authorities. There's many infrastructure projects in the area. For example, there's a lot of port infrastructure that's ongoing. And so they also will need to be doing carbon offsetting, biodiversity net gain. So I don't know if that's something that you have in Germany, but here now, um, any sort of development comes along with a biodiversity net gain target that you have to achieve. So, um, and typically it can't be achieved on their site. So then the funding goes to uh, projects elsewhere. So there's a lot of sources that should be available. And then with projects like the natural capital account that was done for the area, it then becomes more apparent how much value exists there. And so people then will be more inclined to other businesses that are having to provide carbon offsetting will understand then how they can help to fund some of these schemes as well. So yeah, but definitely a blended model is it's going to require a huge amount of funding in the long term. Yeah, definitely. But the gains will far off, you know, far outweigh uh, those <laughs> <Yeah>. costs. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Um, when I think about my work at the Everway Foundation, uh, we promote like environmental education. We want to raise awareness uh, for environmental protection, for uh, marine protection, um, and especially for young people. 
And I think when people or even kids start to love something, start to get to know something, then they can protect it. Because when you don't know something, you don't know something about it, you, you're not into it and you don't save it finally because you don't even know something about it. So when you love something, you're going to protect it. That's um, what I think about um, education. So is there anything how you do want to help people fall in love with the nature? Will you consider educational aspects? Um, is there something like that? Yeah, definitely. I completely agree with you um, that we really need to sort of instill that love of nature in everyone from a young age. I think especially nowadays with more and more people living in cities, like you mentioned at the beginning of, of the podcast, You know, there's so many people now that don't really have direct access to nature, especially our children. And I think with more and more time spent on screens and less time spent in the real world, that disconnection is even being amplified at a much greater degree. So I think it's just essential that we then include it as part of the education system. I mean, there's some really interesting models around the world of how people are incorporating sort of these nature-based studies, you know, from early, early years, right, from the time children are in nursery through reception, but that these ideas are incorporated about how we collaborate with nature and how we care for nature and how we care for the planet. You know, all of these things, I think, are fundamental to the education system. And I guess some of the things that we try to do are encouraging the local schools and children in the area to have access to these spaces. You know, so that's the first thing is to actually bring nature into the school environment, but also to have places like that close to the schools. So even if it's not possible on the school site itself, that the classes are able to get out to these places. You know, so in the project in South Essex, for instance, we were working with a lot of the local environmental charities and looking at ways to bring in educational programs onto their sites so that children could work with, um, for example, the RSPB, which really focuses on bird life in the UK, or the Essex Wildlife Trust, and having these opportunities to bring school children onto those sites to learn more about that. But um, another project, you know, we also do quite a lot of work in London itself. And one project we did a few years ago was in my neighborhood, where my neighborhood was pulling together a plan of its own for the community. And I think this is a really exciting way forward, too, is to be not only kind of looking out for communities, but allowing the communities to generate their own plans. So in that particular project, I went into the school and I held workshops with the children. We took them out on site visits of the area and we talked about the possibilities, you know, where we could have play spaces, where we could daylight an old stream that used to run through the area, how we could bring nature into the school site itself. And the children just had the most wonderful ideas. <laughs> so I think so often they bring a huge amount of wisdom that a lot of we as adults have unlearned through the course of our lives. So, you know, I think when kids are given the opportunity, they kind of they kind of get it. They sort of know what should be done and how to make a place better and, and how to work with nature. So Yeah, those, those kind of projects are really exciting where we can get kids involved from a very young age and, and at the start of a project. Absolutely. I also think if we give the world to the kids and they can create like the future 
they will do the best out of it. Yeah, so <laughs> that's true. I'm definitely into that. Yeah. So you are from Vancouver and um, you already worked for the city of Vancouver in Canada um, for several years and um, did a lot of projects over there. I have been um, to Vancouver, I think, in 2015. And I remember I was alone there and I did just took a bicycle and I did a lot of bicycle ride over there. And it was so beautiful. Um, and actually, I was thinking one day to stay there because <laughs> it was so beautiful. And yeah. it was, yeah, the weather was nice. And um, I could explore the whole city just with a bicycle. And for me, it was really impressive. And I really enjoyed that one. So was there a project that we remember particularly in, in um, Canada um, and which enabled a really change in the urban environment? Yeah, well, I was really fortunate to work at the city of Vancouver, as you mentioned, um, in a department called the Greenways Department. So that was within the streets department. And the program hadn't been started too long before I began working with them. And it was initiated, actually, by one of my former landscape architecture professors at the university. So she'd convinced the government that this would be a great thing to, to provide a citywide network of green corridors and for walking and cycling primarily, but to also, you know, encourage nature through the cities. And it was also incorporating public art. So, you know, it was a really, in those days, it was quite radical because this was, I think it started in the 1990s. I got involved in 2000. So it was very sort of early days for such things as greenways and blueways, but, but they were doing it back then. And so I had this wonderful opportunity to help plan, design, and then implement these greenways throughout the city. And one particular project came up that was, I think, has always stuck with me that as one of the most exciting accomplishments of my career, and yet it was really early days. So it was an opportunity to redesign a street that was situated between a park and a residential row of houses. And then at the end of the street was a stream that had been culverted. So anyway, we worked with the community that were really keen on doing something innovative, something sustainable and beautiful. So there we worked with all of the community and, and on my team, there were engineers, there were planners and landscape architects. So we all collaborated on this and came up with a scheme that narrowed the road surface. So there was less asphalt on the road. So by narrowing it to slow down the speed of the cars, we put some curves into the, into the alignment of the street, again, to slow it down. We incorporated swales on either side of the road. So rather than having all of the storm water rush into the storm sewer network, the water then was naturally filtrated through these swales that helped to pull the pollutants out and also replenished groundwater at the same time. And... It had the added effect of slowing the water speed as it entered the stream. So, you know, typically we have these gushes of water that go through our storm sewers and then it just scours the streams as soon as it hits them. And it makes it a very inhospitable place for anything trying to live there. Um, so what had happened over time was this stream that existed at the end of the street that had once had salmon had no longer had salmon because of the conditions of the street and because a culvert had been put in 
at a certain point. So another um, key part of the project was to remove the culvert and to just make some minor changes to the stream bed there that would make it um, a much more welcoming place for spawning salmon again. So anyway, after we did those things, we planted more trees. We used native ground covers and planting as well to help absorb the water and also just to make the street more beautiful and a better place for um, the ecology of the area. And so when we'd done all those things, we found that salmon started coming back to the stream the next year, just like that. You know, it was amazing that we could see the benefits just incredibly quickly. And the community loved the street, you know, it was beautiful, pleasant, it made it a much more hospitable environment for pedestrians and for cyclists. So, you know, it was a win all around and not more expensive to build it in that way, which again is really, you know, astounding. Wow. So I think this is like a really, really cool thing to listen to you to, to see that the greatest effect um, is that the salmon come back. I mean, it's a proof for how important your work is. This is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to show, you know, when we just make these really basic changes, you know, it's not rocket science. It's just, it's actually just going back to the basics, really, and, and working with what exists already, you know. So rather than trying to over-engineer everything and trying to force nature into these little channels, we just kind of allow it to be and work with it rather than trying to resist it all the time. And then when we do, we create these amazing places. <laughs> yeah, sometimes the simple things are the most important things in life. That's true. Mm. So, yeah, when we talk about the importance of your projects, um, what are the future projects we can expect from you? <laughs> well, so we're continuing to work on that South Essex project. At the moment, we're building out the first phase of it, which is along the waterfront. So it's along the Thames Estuary. And we're just focusing at the moment on creating much better access to the waterfront because industry and all sorts of other sort of uses in the area have prevented the people that live there from being able to access the waterfront. So we thought that was really important, even just to get people down to the coast. Um, so we're providing a new path network that does that. And at the same time, sort of improving some of the environmental quality of the area. So there's new planting, there's new wetland planting. In some areas, there's new tree planting where it's appropriate, but we're always working with the existing ecosystems. And we're incorporating just some really simple elements like benches. There's some bird hides along the route where people can start to enjoy the nature and the wonderful bird life that exists within those marshes. So yeah, so we're working on that project at the moment. And um, we are continuing to work with Sky TV. So we did their campus for them a few years ago. And ever since, we've continued to work with them on any sort of new projects that they've got for expansion at their campus. So currently, we're working on the implementation of a new entry and a, a plaza, an entry plaza for them. So, But incorporating still many of these strategies to do with, you know, how we can improve streets and the ecology within urban spaces. Wow. So some more big picture projects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so cool to listen to you and I could talk to you like for the next hours, I think. <laughs> But um, as a part from your experience, um, do you know a good book or a 
podcast, movie, anything which you could recommend to our audience when they want to get more into this topic? Yeah, well, gosh, I was thinking about what I might say for a book and there's just so many. <laughs> I've, got, I've got stacks of them beside me here, but one that I've just recently purchased is called Earth Democracy And it's by a woman named Vandana Shiva. She's basically like a rock star of um, the environmental movement. She's from India, and she's just an incredible person. She's um, she's done so many wonderful things to do with um, you know protecting and restoring nature and um, and promoting regenerative schemes, not only for sort of meeting environmental conditions, but also to improve social justice. And how we can help, you know, by improving nature, we actually help to improve so many other conditions and we help to relieve hunger and poverty, you know, so it's all interconnected. And what we do for the health of the planet also improves the health of every one of us. So anyway, her book is wonderful. So I would recommend that, Earth Democracy. But I think she's written like 20 books or something. So, so any one of them, I'm sure, would be great. And also, there's a podcast that I've really been enjoying recently by Russell Brand, you know, so the comedian and celebrity. Well, he's he's kind of completely transformed himself. And now he has this podcast. It's called Free, I believe. And uh, anyway, he has all sorts of really interesting people speaking on the program. And many of them have to do with sustainability. Um, you know, he, he had Vandana Shiva on recently. That might be how I originally discovered his podcast. Anyway, loads of interesting people and, and topics explored on his podcast. And actually, I have a book coming out soon um, that's called Portrait to Landscape. So look out for that in coming months. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, and thank you for the, the great discussion. It was so impressive um, to get to know your project, um, especially, of course, the Sea Park um, project in the UK. And um, yeah, future generations are dependent on the actions we are currently interacting. And I think only by joint forces, if we are all working together, we will be able to create a sustainable planet for the next generations. And we can only do this if we cooperate um, on finding sustainable solutions, if we work together. And of course, if we all live the motto of this podcast, like together for sustainability. So thank you so much um, for sharing your insight experience with us. And yeah, I'm really, really happy to talk to you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And like you, I could talk about all of this for hours and hours on end. <laughs> Absolutely. It's very exciting. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much, Alexandra. And um, we are looking forward to your future projects. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>